Uh, if you have a Bible, uh, open up to Acts uh, chapter 12. Uh, we're in a pretty uh, interesting, uh, I don't know how else to describe it, but uh, we're in a pretty interesting text uh, that involves worms and a few other things. And, um, uh, and as I really was spending time with this text, kind of thinking about it, one of the things I just wanted to encourage you with is, especially if you're new, newer to the community, uh, we talk about all of Scripture here. We're not uh, that group that just kind of picks and chooses um, like the really fun things to talk about then avoids the harder things to talk about. So I just want you to know we're faithful to, to preach and communicate and teach what Scripture has to say, not just part of it, but all of it. And so we come to one of these passages in Acts chapter 12 today um, that's at best, it's just a challenging, challenging story. And I'm certainly not going to be able to answer every question that uh, emerges from a text like this. Uh, but the one question that I really wanted to uh, raise and ask uh, this morning and spend some time answering is the question of what might it look like for you and for me, what would it look like to glorify God in all things at all times and all places? Like, what would it look like for you to say, my life is a life that is all about glorifying God in all things at all times and all places? Uh, this, uh, this was Friday night. Uh, I came home from work and uh, Kyle was there and the kids were there. And, uh, if you have kids, you know that sometimes when you get home, it's crazy and it's loud and they're excited to see you and just want to play and hang out. Well, on this Friday, I just want to hang out with Kyla. So I told my kids, I was like, for 10 minutes, I want you to go upstairs and I want you to think about this. What is the meaning of life? So for 10 minutes, I want you to go upstairs in your room have a conversation between yourselves. My son is 10, my daughter's nine, and my youngest son is seven. So I want you to go and have a discussion on what the meaning of life is. So they were like, oh, dad. I'm like, no, upstairs, meaning of life. And uh, to be honest with you, I just did that so I could hang out with Kyla for a little bit, but I figured might as well give him something good to talk about. And so they came back 10 minutes later and, and I was like, all right, well, what's the meaning of life? And uh, Caden, my youngest son, uh, who's seven, he's like, Dad, the meaning of life is to glorify God. And I was shocked. I was like, what? I didn't say that because I had to act all tough. And um, I was like, all right, that's a very good answer. But 10 more minutes upstairs on what does it actually mean to glorify God? And Caden was like, are you serious? Like, isn't that a good answer? I was like, it's a great answer. But I don't want you to have an answer, but not actually know what it means and how to actually live that out. And uh, so they went upstairs for 10 minutes, and I just was so blessed, encouraged, and amazed that that's the answer that these, these three came down with. Uh, and then they came down 10 minutes later, and I was like, all right, if the meaning of life is to glorify God, then what does it mean to glorify God? And they're like, Dad, we don't know. And um, <laughs> we continued on with our Friday night, but really, I was excited that they actually said that because... This was really, honestly, almost straight out of the story that we're in today of, you know, if the meaning of life is to glorify God, if the reason that you and I are here, uh, the reason that we have existence is that our existence, our life would be given over to just glorifying God, uh, well, what does that mean? Like, I mean, practically, I, like day to day, moment by moment, like how do I live a life that would actually be glorifying to God? And it's one of those things you might hear that in the church uh, but then if someone pressed you just a little bit to say, could you please articulate to me, what does it really look like to glorify God? I think a lot of us, uh, including my seven-year-old, 
would have a hard time putting words to what it actually means. And my heart for you this morning is just simply this, is that you would not just know what it means, practically speaking, to glorify God, but that you would actually uh, be so convinced of this is what it looks like to glorify God, that the life that you begin living and continue living would be so compelling that when someone asks, hey, what does it look like to glorify God? They're like, well, I know this guy, and I, I know this girl, and the way that they are living their life is so compelling that that's what it looks like, tangibly speaking, practically speaking, that's what it means to glorify God. Uh, so that's my heart for this morning, is answering the question of what does it really look like to glorify God? That you could honestly leave from here today and say, you know what, my greatest joy in life, my greatest pleasure in life is to glorify God and actually know what that means uh, in a very practical way. So maybe a good follow-up question to if, if my desire is that your greatest joy would be found in glorifying God, uh, then I'd have to ask the question, what currently is your greatest joy? Uh, what in your life actually is bringing you your greatest joy? Uh, there's a great book, I recommended it out there by, um, in the little bookshelf with the recommended reads. C.S. Lewis wrote a great book called The Weight of Glory, and he said this, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition and uh, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Then he goes on to say, we are far too easily pleased. Now that might be a quote that if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis, you might be like, I've, I've heard that before. But what I love about that quote is, Lewis says our problem is not that we have too much joy or too much passion or too much desire. What he's saying is we actually don't have enough. We actually don't have enough that the thing that we often go to for our greatest pleasure, our greatest joy is so much less than what God actually has for us and we settle for that. That God has actually invited us into a holiday at the sea. Uh, meaning a relationship with him, but yet we often settle for like an ignorant child making mud pies in a slum because he just can't imagine what life would look like. So my heart for us is that you'd actually say, you know what, my greatest joy, my greatest pleasure comes from glorifying God. This is Acts uh, chapter 12. I'm just going to read a few verses uh, to finish out Acts 12. David, I'm going to blow my nose real quick, so if you want to help me out with that. <laughs> this is Acts 12, says this, uh, verse 20, now Herod, remember we met Herod last week, Herod was the one who murdered uh, the first apostle, uh, he murdered uh, the apostle James, uh, brother of John, uh, so now Herod was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, so they sent a delegation to make peace with him because their cities were dependent upon Herod's country for food. The delegates won the support of Blastus, Herod's personal assistant, and an appointment with Herod was granted. And so when the day arrived, Herod put on his royal robes, and he sat on his throne, and he made a speech to them. And the people gave him a great ovation, shouting, it's the voice of God, not of man. 
Verse 23, instantly an angel of the Lord struck Herod with a sickness because he accepted the people's worship instead of giving glory to God. So he was consumed with worms and he died. That's the story we're looking at uh, this morning. Uh, If the question is, what does it look like? What does it mean to, to have a life that's giving glory to God all the time with all things at all places? Herod, to me, Herod Agrippa... Uh, is a guy who failed miserably. Is a guy who absolutely failed miserably. Uh, you know, and when I first, when I read this story, part of me is like, well done, God. Like, justice is served. Like, this guy was a wicked dude. He killed James. He put Peter in prison. He was persecuting Christians, persecuting the church. So when I first read that, I'm like, God, well done. Way to take him out. And God, how creative. Worms, like I wouldn't have thought of that. That's, that's beautiful. Well done. That's what I think. But then when I sit with it and actually allow Scripture to examine me, um, I really wrestled this week with, oh, Michael, how much of Herod is in you? The thing that he fell prey to, how often do you fall prey to it? And I was really convicted um, of how much I can often resemble Herod, or how often I see just Herod, how I think if we're honest with ourselves that there's a lot of Herod in all of us. Here's what I mean when I say a lot of Herod in us. Uh, Here's four things that I learned about Herod. Uh, Number one is he acted in order to draw attention to himself. Uh, Again, this is going back last week, but the first thing we learn about this king uh, in Acts 12 is this. About the time King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church, and he had the apostle James, John's brother, killed with a sword, meaning he cut his head off. When Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, he also arrested Peter. This is another way of saying Herod was nothing more than a people pleaser. Whatever would please people, that's what he did, including killing an apostle, uh, prisoning Peter, persecuting other Christians. This guy was nothing more than just a people pleaser. Like, wow, okay, well, I can often be a people pleaser. Uh, The second thing I learned about Herod, he responded in order to draw attention to himself. Uh, Acts 12, verse 20, we read this verse. Now Herod was was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And so they sent a delegation to make peace with him. Scripture doesn't tell us, and as best as I read, I have no idea why Herod was angry with these people. But what I do know is his response to these people was all in order to draw attention to himself. Because these people are dependent upon Herod for provision of food. Because if Herod gets mad, if he gets angry, then he will stop sending food to these people and they will die of starvation. There will be a famine in the land. Herod knows that. And so what he wants from these people is he wants these people coming to him to appease him. I'm like, well, okay. Strike two, I've done that as well. Number three, he dressed in order to draw attention to himself. Acts 12, verse 21. When the day arrived, Herod put on his royal robes and he sat on his throne. Now, some of you guys might be like, I don't really dress in such a way to draw attention to myself. I don't really care what I look like. Um, Well, 
As I dug a little bit deeper into actually what Herod was wearing, uh, Josephus is a uh, Jewish historian, uh, and Josephus actually recorded in great detail this day, this moment, and what happened with Herod. And this is what he said about the outfit that Herod was wearing. Herod put on a garment made wholly of silver and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it It's shown out in a surprising manner. And it just went on to give in great detail that Herod knew exactly if he wore this and showed up in the theater at this exact time in the morning when the sun was rising over the theater and the the sun would hit his outfit, his, his robe as it were, that was made of silver, it would just beam. So he puts on something that will draw the most attention to himself. Uh, Now, again, you might not have a wardrobe crisis every single day, uh, meaning you kind of think about what you're doing in the day. You think about who you're going to see. You think about who you're going to interact with. And often what we think about is, well, if I wear this, they might think this. If I put this on or put my hair this way, I mean, I wrestle with that a lot, what I do with my hair. Um, You know, if I put on a certain pair of shoes, a certain pair, whatever it is, we often, we might think that's so lame of Herod But how often do we do the exact same thing? We dress in such a way in hopes that people will say, huh, they'll take a little bit more notice, give us a little bit more attention, or at least turn their heads towards us. And this is what Herod did. Uh, The fourth thing I learned about Herod is this. He spoke in order to draw attention to himself. Meaning he gave apparently an amazing speech that day because it says when the day arrived, he put on his robes, sat on the throne, and he made a speech to them. And the people gave him a great ovation shouting, it's the voice of God. It is the voice of God. Because if God were to speak, Herod, you sound, it must sound just like what you said. So four things, acted in order to draw attention, responded in order to draw attention, he dressed in order to draw attention, and he spoke in order to draw attention to himself. Everything Herod did was to draw attention to himself, and he got the attention he wanted. People prayed. People stood in wonder and awe. So he got exactly what he was looking for, but as you saw at the end of the story, the cost was great. And the irony, and I don't think it's meant to be lost on us, the irony is King Herod and he looked great. He looked absolutely great. He sounded great. He was impressive. But on the inside, he was rotten away. He was rotting away. He looked beautiful. He looked impressive. He was well said, well spoken, well dressed. But again, this is a guy who was absolutely just rotting away on the inside. Now, as you consider the, the sin and the, just the folly of Herod, can you relate with him now it may be in a new way. As you consider, you know what? I often do things or say things uh, in order to ultimately just draw attention to myself or in hopes that by doing this, I will actually draw attention to myself in hopes that someone will notice, someone will compliment, someone will say something to, again, put the, the center of their attention on me. So I really wrestle how much of what I do is done in order to draw attention to me. Everything Herod did was done in a way to draw attention to him. So it's easy for me to throw a stone and be like, what an idiot. How could he do that? When I'm like, wow, 
how often I do the exact same thing. I might mask it a little bit different. I'm pretty confident you're not going to see me walking around in a robe made of silver. Uh, So I might mask it a little bit different, but I really wrestle. How much of what I do is done? How much of what I say is said in hopes that the attention will be on me? How much of what you do is, is done as, uh, to draw attention to yourself as well? Um, now, again, it might play out a little bit different for us than it did for Herod, um, but this is the most practical example I could think of and, and give to you. Um, there's over a billion people on our planet connected to Facebook, so I'm going to guess that most of you are. So as you consider Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or Pinterest, let me just ask a question. How much of what you actually post on any of those social media venues is done in such a way where your ultimate hope, your ultimate desire is that someone is going to like it? Someone is going to just come back to that page and they're going to share that page. They're going to repin whatever you pinned. They're going to retweet whatever you tweeted. Like how much of what we do and we put out there, so to speak, is in order to draw attention? Now, here's the challenging question. When you post something and pick your social media outlet, how often do you go back and check? How many likes did I get? How many people retweeted, repinned? How many people liked it? Now, you might think, Michael, that's ridiculous. What's the big deal about looking back at who likes something I post, whether it was a quote or a picture of my food? Um, But why does that, who cares? Well, I'll tell you why it's a big deal. Uh, the question is not so much if you looked back and see if it, someone liked your stuff. The question becomes uh, what it does for us. What it does for us. Oh, gosh, I posted something. I thought it was brilliant and only 12 people liked it. What's wrong with everyone else? Like, why didn't I get 100 likes on that one? That was an amazing thought, comment, picture. Like, how could not more people have, you know, reposted this or liked this? So again, that might be just a really goofy, lame example, uh, but in our culture, in our context, how often do we do that? We go back incessantly and check for something in hopes that if more people liked it, we're going to feel better about ourselves. And if a lot of people didn't like it, then we get really down on ourselves or we'll just get down on other people and just be like, well, a bunch of idiots, how did they not understand the genius of what I just posted? Again, my heart was convicted pretty heavy this week of how much I actually see of Herod and how much of what I do. What rotted Herod's heart is the very thing that often rots our heart, the desire to be noticed, the desire to be valued, the desire to be praised, the desire to be honored, the desire to be recognized. I've been preaching now since 2007, like full-time. I started preaching in 1998, but I mean full-time like every Sunday for the last, whatever that is, six, seven years. And I remember the very first few years of preaching, it was just a miserable, miserable experience. I could not stand Sunday afternoons because, and I'll just be honest with you, if I didn't get people coming up to me on Sunday morning or at the time we were meeting in the evening, and again, I didn't say this, but what I really wanted more than anything was people to come up to me like, Michael, my life is forever changed because I just sat and listened to this amazing thing that you said, I am forever different. Like, again, I didn't, I didn't say I wanted that, but my heart just craved it. Uh, 
And then when I would go home in the evenings or when I was preaching in the mornings, I would just be miserable for Kyla to be around because I was just, no one liked it like I wanted them to like it. And so my identity was just so, my joy was so wrapped up in if people liked something, valued something, appreciated something, that's where I was seeking my ultimate pleasure, my ultimate joy is in what I did and if people cared, if people noticed. It's exactly what Herod's doing. He was doing everything to draw attention to him. And he completely missed the boat on, uh, that's a life that is all about glorifying you. And if you live a life that's all about glorifying you, uh, it's a tragic end. It's a wasted life. Because if life is meant to glorify God, and what we ultimately do is live in such a way to glorify ourselves, uh, we will tragically miss what God has for us. You know, what's really interesting, if, if you think about it, why do I look for other people to do for me what they ultimately can't do? Because the same people that I'm looking to do for me give me validation, uh, you know, encouragement, uh, just hit me with just compliment after compliment. If I'm doing that, and I'm pretty confident most people do that, how is it possible that the people I'm looking to, to do for me, and they're looking to do the same thing, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. If we're all just walking around hoping that someone is going to notice and value so we can feel better about ourselves, we're just looking ultimately in the wrong place. Now, I'm not a psychologist, but I did do psychology in undergraduate, so I can say that uh, I don't think I I looked in the the psychology books to see if this was actually, uh, if anyone's come up with this diagnosis, so you can write it down, and if it gets famous, you can give me credit. Totally kidding. That was meant to be funny, so we'll just move on from that comment. If I was to diagnose Herod, I would give him the diagnosis of NEPD. That's what I would say. Herod, you got a wicked case of NEPD. And Herod would say, well, all right, Mike, what the heck is NEPD? And I would say, Herod, you suffer from a narcissistic entitlement personality disorder. Now, I'm not sure if that's an actual real condition, but as I wrestle with what rotted the heart of Herod, what I see more than anything is, is in this man, what I see more than anything is entitlement. He was dying from the inside from this thing just called this narcissistic, obsessed with self and obsessed with this entitlement that he deserved everything. Now, let me ask the question of, I'm sure entitlement is not new to you, but what is entitlement? And so we flip to Webster's. They are helpful. Entitlement, according to Webster, says this. It's the condition of having a right to have to do or get something. It's the feeling or belief that you deserve to be given something such as a special privilege. Now, I'm pretty confident that Herod was an entitled dude. And maybe he just thought he was entitled because of his position, uh, that because of his title, his role, his position, that people should bow down and worship him. People should appreciate him, should value him, should notice him, should recognize him. But this is a guy who was suffering from a wicked case of entitlement. Now, I really wanted to kind of wrap my head around, like, this plays, this this is not just like a King Herod thing. This is a cultural thing. So I turned to who I knew to be the best cultural analyst of our day, Ashton Kutcher. And um, Ashton Kutcher had this to say. He said, there's an entitlement that is starting to emerge 
that I think is unhealthy for people and unhealthy for our country. Uh, this was not too long ago, but uh, when he was the, uh, the uh, recipient of the Teen Choice Award, um, he gave a pretty phenomenal acceptance speech. And if you're wondering why do I watch things like the Teen Choice Awards, it's just for moments like this. Um, but he gave a phenomenal speech. He didn't just say, hey, I give thanks, I give thanks. He put his award down and uh, he preached for about seven minutes. And he told, because there's all kids there, high school kids and middle school kids. Uh, and he just preached and went off on how this is such an entitled generation. Uh, and we all expect uh, that we think we deserve something, therefore we don't work for anything. Um, so he was later interviewed, and that's where he was quoted by, on the, don't ask how I know all these things, on the Ellen Talk Show. Um, <laughs> I'm really outing myself here. Um, on the Ellen DeGeneres show, he was interviewed by Ellen, and that's exactly what he said. And there's a lot of truth in what he said, but what he honestly missed is uh, there's an entitlement that is starting to emerge. It actually emerged thousands of years ago. Uh, and everyone who has given themselves over to this idea of entitlement, uh, that I have done this, therefore I deserve this, it is something that just rots us to the core and prevents us from doing what God created us to do to glorify him. Another sociological psycho psychologist said this, a prominent feature of our current Western, Western, Western culture is its growing sense of individual narcissistic entitlement. And such a sense of entitlement equips one very badly to deal not only with one's own failure, but also with somebody else's success. And it just went on to talk about people who live entitled lives uh, are selfish, self-centered people. And if you have a community and a culture of selfish, self-centered people, uh, it will radically reshape uh, the dynamic of that culture. And they went on to talk about that's exactly what's happening in the culture that you and I live so how does this feeling of being entitled actually play out? I like how Craig Groeschel, uh, he's a pastor at uh, Life Church uh, TV in Oklahoma, uh, he said this about uh, entitlement. Entitlement is that little voice that says, I want it and adds and I deserve it. Entitlement provides fuel for the engine of self-justification. And I really wanted you to catch, go ahead and put the Craig Groeschel quote back up. Oh, the mouse died. Okay. Um, I really wanted you to catch entitlement is that little voice that says, I want it, but then it adds, and I deserve it. Herod, I want it, and I deserve it. And as I've, again, really wrestled with how does this actually play out in our lives, it might sound like this. Uh, I've worked really hard. Like I've been busting my butt. I've been doing this. I've been doing this. I've been doing this and this. I deserve a little me time because I've done this. I've poured out over here. I've given over here. And by God, I deserve a little me time. Uh, entitlement shows up in things like, I've been good recently. I deserve this guilty pleasure. Like it's just a guilty pleasure. It's just a look on the net. It's just a drink. It's just, you fill in the blank. I've been so good for so long. I've managed my sin. 
that I deserve this guilty pleasure. What's the problem with it? I deserve it. Or it plays out, I've been so generous before. I've given of my time, my talent, my treasure. I've done this, this, and this. I deserve a little something special for me. Again, I could play out how entitlement literally plays out in our life. Um, But the difference for me about entitlement, and I wrote it down like this, uh, is entitlement is born from a life that is founded upon a workspace life rather than a grace-based life. Entitlement, let me say it again, is born from a life that is founded or grounded upon a works-based life rather than a grace-based life. And the big difference is a works-based life says, I've done it, therefore I deserve. A grace-based life says, he's done, uh, he's done it, therefore I will give. Work says, I've done all of these things, therefore I deserve. And it's not just I deserve like a positive thing, but it's also when suffering and hardship comes, the entitlement kicks in of like, how dare God do this to me because I'm a good person. I've done this. I don't deserve this, but I do deserve this. It's the mentality that just screams, God, you owe me. God, you owe me. And I like how Pastor uh, Jared Wilson said it. He said, we're not entitled to anything. We're not entitled to anything. We have graciously been made co-heirs with Jesus and a response out of gratitude and joy and love for God should be humility and servanthood and sacrifice. And I really like how he said it. We're not entitled to anything. Everything that I have in my life has been given to me by God because he's gracious, not because I've done anything to deserve it. Everything that I have in my life, from the clothes that I wear to the community I get to be part of, to the family that I have, everything in my life has been given to me by God, not because I deserve any of it, but because he's gracious. That's a great, that's a reflection of a grace-based life of he's done all of this, therefore I get to do this. Therefore I will, I, I will give in light of everything he's already done, not in response to what I've done, therefore he must give. So entitlement, it keeps us from being gracious and generous and just genuine servants. Uh, And at the end of the day, it happened to Herod. Entitlement will keep us from glorifying God because entitlement is self-focused, self-centered. It's inward thinking. uh, And that's exactly what Herod did. And if you live entitled, uh, you will miss what it means, what it looks like to glorify God. Uh, I want you to wrestle with this question this week in community groups. Uh, if you're not in a community group, I encourage you to get in one. But I really want you to wrestle with this question of uh, how is entitlement impacting right now your walk with God? How is entitlement showing up and impacting how you relate with God, connect with God, pray with God? How is entitlement showing up in how you relate with other people? How is it showing up? Because if you examine and just pull a layer back, you're going to see we all deal with entitlement. So how is it showing up in how you understand and relate with God. Now, the end of the story where it says, uh, you know, he received praise and worship from the people, and it says an angel of the Lord struck him with a sickness. Now, again, that might just seem like really weird or hard or confusing, but as I really wrestled this week with uh, verse 23, 
It says, instantly an angel of the Lord struck Herod with a sickness because he accepted the people's worship instead of giving the glory to God. So he was consumed with worms and he died. Um, I just really saw that as God's grace to Herod. And that might sound really strange. How on earth is it possible that worms from God to you is actually a demonstration of God's grace to you? It says in the text uh, that instantly an angel of the Lord struck Herod with a sickness. It doesn't say he instantly died right there on the spot. And so again, as just reading through um, uh, some church history, uh, looking at Josephus, who was a a very faithful, reliable Jewish historian. This is actually what he said about the account of Herod Agrippa. He said, A severe pain arose in his belly, striking, a most violent, uh, striking with a most violent intensity. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life, being in the 50th, uh, 54th year of his age and on, in the seventh year of his reign. And again, I get that that's not necessarily in the Bible, and, uh, but at least as I'm looking at church history and how history records what happened to Herod Agrippa, uh, there was a period roughly of five days. And I see as just God's grace to Herod of, yes, I inflicted you with sickness, but what would have happened if Herod would have just repented? What would, I don't know. Obviously, I'm speculating here, so I won't go too far with that. But I just see as that God is gracious, that God, even despite inflicting Herod with worms that led to his death, um, I just see that is gracious of God to give something to Herod that could have been used to bring Herod back to where he should have been, not seeking glory for himself, but giving glory to the one who deserves it in God. Um, Now, this might be a really hard, challenging question uh, to think about and to wrestle with, and I'm okay with that. Uh, but, uh, and I don't want to over-spiritualize the idea or concept of worms. But again, as I was thinking about, uh, I have no idea, and I'll just put this in quotes, what worms God will send our way to get our attention. But I do know this. God is gracious to me. He's gracious to you to send whatever it is our way to get our attention so that we spend our lives glorifying him. He will use good things. He will use hard things. He will use anything in between that spectrum to get us to a place where our lives are not wasted, giving glory to anything or anyone other than him. I can tell you from just lots of personal experience, God has sent a lot of proverbial worms my way to refocus my attention off of self and refocus my attention completely and absolutely on him and him alone. Um, What does it look like to glorify God? Herod's not a good example. He missed it. He didn't do it. Uh, And I wanted just to give you two words and encourage you to write these words down. Because if someone were to ask me, Michael, at the end of the day, what does it really look like to glorify God? I would say this, it's enjoying God. If my life would be given over to glorifying God, then that means that I am enjoying God. I wrote it down uh, like this. You'll be most happy when you seek to glorify God by enjoying God at all times in all places. Our greatest joy will come from glorifying God and the way we can glorify God is to actually enjoy God. 
So it leads us obviously to a great question of, are you enjoying God or is God just a burden to you? Are you enjoying God? Are you enjoying who God is and what God is doing? And again, you might be in just a fight of your life right now. The storm might be just intense and it might be crazy. But despite the intensity of a storm or the height of a great victory, we can still enjoy God because God is unchanging. So my circumstance should not dictate whether I enjoy God because God doesn't change. So are you enjoying God? I think a lot of people have a hard time with that concept of enjoying God because your view of God is he's like a cosmic bookkeeper, cosmic killjoy. And he's not a bookkeeper. He's not a cosmic killjoy. He's a God to, that we have been invited to know, to be in relationship with, and to enjoy. Uh, very quickly, because I'm already running out way over time. Uh, how do you enjoy God? If glorifying God, the thing that would glorify God most is that you and I would enjoy God, how do I begin to enjoy God? And I'll give you two quick thoughts in passing. Number one would be this. We enjoy God when we have a growing relationship with Jesus. You cannot enjoy God outside of knowing Jesus. You cannot enjoy God outside of a growing relationship with Jesus. Because the way that we know God is through Jesus and Jesus alone. So it will be impossible for you and I to enjoy God void of Jesus, divorced from Jesus. And I'm not just talking about like you've, you can spell Jesus. I'm not talking about like you can tell some stories to people about who Jesus, he was, was a baby and he grew up. I'm talking about enjoying God is actually enjoying God when we have that growing relationship with Jesus. Mark Driscoll, another pastor, said it like this, and I love this quote, Jesus gives us God. Jesus gives us God. God is our highest treasure, our greatest delight, our deepest joy, our most profound happiness uh, is that God loves us, that God knows us, that God cares for us, that God has given himself to us, and that we get to live for his glory. Not that we have to, but that we get to. We get to finally do the singular cause for which we were made to glorify God. Jesus does that. So in Jesus, I get to enjoy all of those things of who God is and what God's like. The second way we can enjoy God is we enjoy God when we begin doing all that God wants us to do. When you start doing what God wants you to do, you'll actually start enjoying God. One reason, one major reason why you might not be enjoying God right now is because you're just not doing what God wants you to do. You're still doing what you want to do. Give you a great example, serving a lot of people view service. I'm not talking about just serving the church on a Sunday morning. I'm talking about a life of service. Whether it's here on Sunday or just throughout the week, a lot of people would view serving as just a pain, a burden, a drain, and all of those things. And a lot of the reason why many people are not enjoying God or enjoying relationship with God is because God wants us to serve. God wants us to serve. I can tell you one of the ways that I enjoy God most is through serving. One of the ways that I just smile the biggest and enjoy God the most is just when I'm serving. But when I sit and I do nothing and my life reflects that, I'm generally pretty miserable. And the thing that's making me most miserable is often the thing that I think is actually going to cause me misery, meaning serving. So we enjoy God when we begin doing all that God wants us to do. So the obvious question is, are you doing what God wants you to do? 
And when you start saying yes to what God wants you to do, you will start enjoying God. I'm not suggesting that some things that God wants us to do will be challenging, they will be difficult, and they will be hard, but I promise you there will be great joy when you start doing everything that God wants you to do all of the time, whether it's serving, whether it's giving, whatever it might be. I was so blessed when my seven-year-old kid came down and said, Dad, the meaning of life is to glorify God. And like many, when asked, hey, what does that mean? What does it look like to glorify God? It's like, well, I don't know. And I think that's the answer of a lot of us. What does it mean to actually glorify God? And I glorify God most when I'm enjoying God. And I enjoy God most when I'm growing with Jesus and I'm doing what God wants me to do, not what I want to do.